time in quarantine, I've been reminded of how I'm not very good with keeping in touch with friends, supporters, or building communities. I'm the kind of person that loves to do the behind the scenes work to make it so that everything feels like it was smooth and easy. I like to do the work that makes your work feel effortless. I hope that through this podcast, I can help you be more successful in your creative endeavors by me doing some of the prep work for you, by laying down some inspirations and some insights from my guests that will assist you in working towards ridding the world of the stigma of the starving artist. I may not be the shining example of success that I always hope that one day I can be, so until that time I hope that these conversations can assist and inspire you to be better think bigger and gain more in your creative endeavors. I've not made the best or smartest choices in my own career, but I hope that both you and I can learn from my mistakes and by my guests' successes. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Benjamin Carter. My first question that I, of course, just ask everybody just to get the ball rolling is basically, so how did you get made? You know, like I'm always interested, how do people come to being creative people? So did you have creative family? Did, was it influenced by an experience, a teacher, a friend? Like how did you even find your path into this industry? Yeah, my, my path started early when I was in high school in Virginia in the United States. I was lucky to go to a public high school that had a really good art program. So I took, I finagled my way into having all art classes except for two my senior year. So I was just in the art room the whole time. And what was nice about that is that I had a teacher that was really helpful. And I also had a family that didn't try to convince me not to do that. (laughs) Basically, what I wanted to do was to become an artist full time in high school and no one said that's a horrible idea. <laughs> so I just I just went with it and started to get production jobs in potteries in the area that I worked in. So I was I was getting, you know, public school education and then also working in the field of ceramics and that helped me sort of know where I wanted to go for undergrad and graduate school for ceramics. But I always say that I was too naive to know that it was probably not a good idea to dedicate your life to art at 15. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's definitely not the track that most uh, parents want for their children to go into the creative industries for sure. Now, help me out with one little like nuanced vocabulary thing, just to be sure, because I'm sure I will screw this up throughout this conversation, which is, the difference between ceramicist, potter, uh, I'm sure there are other words. Like, what's the sort of c- most common vernacular, let's say? Sure. This is a, a good question because depending on how you see yourself is how you name yourself. So ceramicist were I- anyone using ceramics. So you could be a sculptor and be a ceramicist. You could be a potter and be a ceramicist. In my sort of circle that I run in, most people are functional potters and they're interested in the history of craft. So they call themselves potters or craftspeople. And it's and it's sort of which lineage are you tying yourself to? I myself call myself a potter um, because that's what I'm doing on a daily basis is I am using the potter's wheel to make a pot. If I was giving a lecture to a fine arts department in a university, I actually just call myself an artist because I, I think that crowd relates more to that term than the specifics of what I do. See, I'm stupid. I always thought that ceramic ceramicists used a very particular um, uh, mud or whatever, basically a ceramic mud versus a, a, a potter's used a, a different version of it. I believe they were even like different colors at some point as well, primarily. Is that right? Um, some of that might go back to the age in which people called themselves ceramicists when they did slip cast ceramics. That would have been like painter-owned pottery type scenario. That was very popular for housewives in the 50s where they would buy slipcast objects, which is interesting because those same slipcast objects have made it into the fine art world in the 80s as artists started drawing from what used to be considered kitsch. 
So mm-hmm. that camp used to call themselves ceramicist. Now we think about it more as that ceramicist is an umbrella term as to where a potter is a specific term of what you, what you, or how you make. Right, because it could also be like if you're, a, if let's say you do like sculptural artistic installations, you would be more like a uh, ceramic artist. Right. And a lot of times people, it depends on where they're educated in higher ed departments. Now, mostly people just call themselves sculptors. Like they, they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't dictate material. And that's a move that's been happening more and more over the last even five years where higher ed departments are merging. They're just having 3d departments versus a clay department, a wood department, you know, material specific departments. Um, and I'm starting to see that in the U.S. That's that's a trend that's happening in U.S. education right now. Yeah, well, it probably saves them money because they don't instead of having like five different professors all teaching three dimensional work, they can just have one or two. Yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm disillusioned with the academic world at the moment, so that's my my position on that at the moment. That within that whole sort of vernacular issue, though, is is there a? This is going to sound really bad. I feel like I'm like antagonizing you on this. But <laughs> like, are there? Is there like a bickering or like a like a like? I feel like there's sort of like a class warfare almost. Like like some people who think they're better than other people. Like because like I've known people who work with clay who do fine artwork and they, I feel like they feel a bit snobby or better than, or higher than like your, your potter that makes very utilitarian, beautiful things that are meant for everyday use kind of stuff. Like there, I feel like there's a large separation between those people, but I'm not in that world. So I'm asking you, it does that exist? Uh, it does exist. And, and that's a debate. A, I, I think of it as a friendly debate. You know, there, Usually people aren't that antagonistic, even though in their mind they have very, very strong opinions. <laughs> so it's actually the animosity, I think, comes from the traditional pottery world looking at fine artists that are painters that are coming into ceramics because clay as a medium has become a really hot topic in New York City galleries and in other like Art Basel, you know, some of the big art fairs. You have people that 10 years ago were painters now using ceramics. I think that really annoys potters who have been working for 40 years (laughs) refining their craft in their studio. But, you know, personally, myself, as I go around and interview artists in my own podcast and talk about these issues, I don't think people are upset about who is using clay. It's the price of the object. So potters are making a living selling 60 to maybe $500 pieces. Painters are coming to clay, making sculptures and selling them for 10 to 20,000 right off the bat. So the class warfare is the price of the object being sold. I think that's the the thing generating the animosity. That's an interesting point. Okay. So now in your work, you seem to lend more towards the traditional pot, what I would call pottery. Like you're not doing high art, fine art installations and, and exhibitions and this kind of stuff. You're doing more utilitarian works that are beautiful, well-crafted, great, you know, beautiful craftsmanship, good skill levels. And of course, beautiful in some way, you know, to be appreciated and used, very utilitarian. How do you figure out prices for that? Yeah, there's a market for pottery that is based off of the tradition of making and selling in the region that I first learned ceramics, which is North Carolina. Uh, I grew up in Virginia, but went to school in North Carolina. And there's... Yep, Appalachian State, right? Exactly. And that whole area is very close to Penland, the Penland School of Craft. And great school. Yeah, really good school. And in that area, people have been making and selling pots because the clay is actually there. So when they're creating this sort of local economy, that's influenced the price of pots all over the U.S. And there's other hotbeds. I shouldn't just say it's North Carolina. You know, Montana, North Carolina, New England has had a ceramic market for many years. And by market, I mean that people have been buying and selling. It's not a specific place you go to buy. Well, but I mean, does the... Uh, sort of the lineage of the history of of a potters and the pottery industry does it relate oftentimes to where the clay the best clay is available so like basically the industry started because the the clay was there 
and then it sort of has just grown from there. And of course, now you can just order it and have it shipped from anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, it does have to do with where the clay is. The In North Carolina, the reason, the reason that the Piedmont of North Carolina is known for ceramics is because you could dig clay out of the ground and use it readily. You don't even need to process it that much. Most of those original deposits have now been used up, but people are still like, I have friends that are digging all their own clay still now, both in the Piedmont and the mountains. But what happened is, is that those centers, if you think about this in the pre-industrial age, when everyone actually used functional pots, pots were made in North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. They were shipped out of the mountains and shipped all over up and down the East Coast. Same could be said in New York, there was in New Jersey, traditional ceramics made there, Pennsylvania. But if you were in, say, Iowa, there's not a lot of traditional ceramics in Iowa that I know of. So these were industrial centers, even though they were potters working in their own studios in the 1700s, 1800s, that was still where the pots were made. So there is a lineage of making and selling. And surprisingly enough, that still dictates prices in a way. You know, like if our tradition of pottery was selling in New York City galleries in the 1700s, all of our prices would be more expensive than if the tradition is selling pots out of the back of a covered wagon, or really it was off the back of barges. They would usually put pots on barges if they were close to river systems and ship them different places. That is dictated that you're paying a price for the skill of the potter, but also an object that if you break, it's cheap enough that it doesn't kill you. Because people had to use these objects every day. Yeah, I mean, which is part of the thing. Like, I love a good handmade piece. Like, I, you know, I try to have as much of my kitchen stocked with as many handmade pieces I can do. I mean, if I can find a good forger to make me even my flatware and my cutlery and all this kind of stuff, I will. But the sometimes the prices can be so high like for great craftsmanship don't get me wrong i by no stretch of the imagination am i downplaying the quality or the craftsmanship or the skill it takes to do it but sometimes the prices get too high like they become an elitist position like they're they're so elevated I mean, is, is that, it's, this is going to sound, again, like I feel like I'm being antagonistic towards you, but like, <laughs> is that is that something you, you as a practitioner desire? Like, do you want to get to that elite status or do you, as a practitioner of pottery, do you want to be more consistently producing good, high, you know, high quality work throughout your lifetime or are you trying to attain that elite status? Yeah, I personally am not trying to attain that elite status because it seems out of range for me for the life that I live. So for instance, the high end of handmade pots, a mug, I sell my mugs, which is the bread and butter. Like people always want to buy mugs um, for $66 U.S., the high end would be about $200 US for a mug. Now, that, that, that's almost my rent here in Prague. But okay. <laughs> right. But if you're a stockbroker that's making 500 to a million dollars a year, to them, $200 for a mug is still very reasonable. And one of the reasons for that is that if you go into a design shop, that's based off of Danish design or mid-century modern, you will easily spend 200 a cup, 400 a plate, depending on what the specific design store is and what the aesthetic is. So it's, it's interesting that discrepancy between designed wear being expensive and handmade wear seeming expensive. And it's really up you know, to the personal shopper which feels correct for their aesthetic. Then they probably will accept the price if they really like the aesthetic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, if I could, I would love to have everything in my entire house to be hand custom made by a craftsman. Like, as much as I appreciate the business model of IKEA and those kinds of companies, I think they have run very good businesses and have found a great little niche market. The hand of the artist, the the unique qualities, the individuality of individual of, of, you know, like every cup having a little bit of a slight feel to it. Like, like I've got, we've got, we've got a set of plates and like five out of the six plates are absolutely stunning, but one of them is just slightly warped. And so it sort of <laughs> wobbles on the table when you cut on it. And so like, it's, it, 
kind of annoying sometimes, but on the other hand, it's kind of like, oh yeah, okay, they're still handmade, you know, they're like, they have their unique qualities. And it, I wonder like how much of that is still appreciated, you know, I mean, like, you know, there's so much of society that's so homogenized and so generalized, like, you know, is this, is the industry for the hand crafted and the unique, is it, is it leveling off? Is it growing? Is it, has it diminished? Where, where does it sit as a general whole right these days? In my experience, it's been growing because there's more people that want to make handmade. So as there are more makers, they become buyers of handmade. How did Etsy influence this? Yeah, and this is this is a Etsy is a great sort of test case. When I was in graduate school in the late, let's see, that would be 2007 to 2010, Etsy was really coming on, and there were a lot of people saying you can't sell handmade over the internet because you can't touch the object. Well, in school, the to the first and second quarter of I believe 2010. We have, we'll have to fact check this, but they had sold a billion dollars worth of handmade objects. So when you think about a billion dollars worth of handmade objects in 2010, what they're selling now, and Etsy is a marketplace, so it's it's a place for any maker to sign up and sell through basically using handmade goods to sell directly to consumers. But now I think that people are, I don't, we don't have that prohibition on buying handmade anymore over the internet. I'd say not most, but a large majority of potters in the U.S. are selling online and probably also in Europe as well because your market is so much bigger. You know, I can sell to people in Australia, New Zealand, in Prague, over well, the but internet. not only that, the the, mar- the market is like you're explaining. Is like it's they're better educated also. So like if they see some pictures from different angles and then they read a description that says this is made with these materials, they understand what that means now. You know, there was a time when we used to look at websites and be like, I don't understand what that means or I don't know how that how heavy that is or what that material is going to feel like. But these days, I, I feel like the consumers might be better educated and have a better ability to say, I understand what it is, even though I can only see it online. Yeah, and I think part of my job as a maker is to educate the audience on the value, the v- I'm conveying the values I find important to them through the objects I make. And that's just a part of the deal. Like the best educator on handmade materials is the object itself. So once the person buys a cup or a bowl, they're more likely to come back if they use and enjoy the aesthetic of the handmade than if they're seeing me online and see I could buy lots of Facebook ads, lots of Instagram ads with nice pictures of work. But that I've not found to be as effective as someone buying a cheaper pot and coming back to buy more later. I'm I'm forming a relationship with the customer over time, which a lot of potters depend on that. I was going to say, so I I like where this is going. So online sales, social media, all this stuff. I ask everybody this stuff. And you're, uh, to be honest, you're the first, uh, I, I feel bad at saying it, but like utilitarian art form. I mean, is that an insult? Not at all. Know. I'm actually proud okay. of that. So don't feel like you're insulting me at all. Okay. <laughs> well, if I said it to somebody else that I've talked to, they might feel insulted, but I think you're fine. So, um, but I mean, the idea of a utilitarian stuff, like selling it online seems a lot easier than like selling a fine painting or a sculpture or something like this because I mean to a certain extent the price point is more moderate I mean even your most expensive stuff is still cheap in the fine art industry kind of stuff so like I feel like this kind of stuff is like an accessible entry-level investment that people can make into handcrafted stuff that like maybe after they buy a bunch of pottery and then they, then they'll move up and maybe get a handcrafted dresser or handcrafted bed or maybe you know even like new you know have a, a forge or do some like cutlery or a good kitchen knife like it it feels like it's it's sort of an, a great entry level into how to appreciate the handmade basically yeah and i think that goes back to the fact that most of us have grown up with handmade objects around us so pottery feels familiar so you can shop online and buy a shape that might be reminiscent of an heirloom that you inherited from your grandparents 
but but it's a contemporary maker making that shape. So for instance, it used to be every potter made casseroles. That was like a thing. Like you had to make a lidded casserole. And because of that, many people have inherited their grandparents' casseroles. <laughs> so if you see a potter making a casserole online today, and in your head you click into, I don't want to say a nostalgia, but almost a familiarity with the nature of the object, it's going to be easier for you to pull that trigger and buy that online because you're already relating it to your experience. When you're buying a painting online, I don't think that quite happens. Like paintings tend to be solely about ideas or, and it's not even paintings, objects on the wall, you tend to relate to them as an idea as to where a functional object, you tend to relate it to an experience you've already had. And so it changes the dynamics of the buying experience. Okay, so tell me some stories about your experiences with online sales. You, you mentioned that Instagram advertisements, Facebook advertisements not working so well for you. You talked about building rapport and building relationships with customers. I love that story. I want to hear some stories because one of my problems in my own practice is that I am very bad with keeping up with and build like I can, I can create those connections and those networks, whatever word you want to put to them, relationships. It's maintaining them. It's, you know, like I hear stories of people saying, oh, well, I post on social media on a regular basis. That's my maintenance of connection with people. Or I post or I send out an email newsletter and that's the way I sort of keep them connected to what I'm working on. So like what kind of experiences have you had with all of that online advertising, marketing, public relations, etc.? Yeah. One of the things I found to be the best marketing is when I am talking to other artists about their work on my podcast. I have a podcast called Tales of a Red Clay Rambler. And on that show, I'm not talking about myself, but because I have interviewed so many artists, people feel like they know the sound of my voice. They know me. They follow my social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all these different platforms, but they feel like they know me. And so it's passive marketing. I, I'm not telling them to buy an object I've made. I'm inviting them into my intellectual life through these conversations with other people. And because of that, they are much more likely to buy when I do have sales. Yeah, and you've had, you have over 300 episodes already. How long have you been doing the podcast? Yeah, I started in 2012 um, when I was living in Shanghai, China. So much like you, I've, I've moved around a lot for <laughs> uh, different teaching gigs. And I was teaching in an art center there and started the podcast as a way to document English-speaking conversations I was having because I wasn't having that many <laughs> English-speaking conversations. So I wanted to savor them. And I'd always been a big radio fan, so I, I basically made the show as similar to Fresh Air. Are you familiar with Terry Gross and Fresh Air? Of course I am. Come on, I'm from the United. I'm from Washington D.C. Of course I'm familiar with NPR. Yeah, she she's the best. She she I think is one of the best interviewers ever. So I basically have taken that format and put it into the context of pottery. But what happens with that show is that I can make announcements at the beginning, like I'm having a sale for Mother's Day. That's my next big sale coming up. And I mentioned that at the beginning of the Crap. show. When's Mother's Day? <laughs> it's in May. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. But I mentioned that casually in the beginning, but then when they listen to me talk to an artist for an hour, it somehow gives them the feeling. It's weird. It's like they feel like because they know me, they might like the objects I make. And then I then market to them more with specific things like doing Instagram posts or newsletters, things like that, that really say to the people that have already bought, would you like to buy again? Here's what I'm having to sale. So it's kind of a two-part process, part passive marketing and part very direct marketing. Right. So, okay, so passive marketing through the podcast itself by just like mentioning something in passing. And then you do some active marketing through email newsletters. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, that is the most actionable thing that I've found, meaning that they get the newsletter, they click the link, they buy. Because a lot of... Um, platforms, like let's say Facebook, before Facebook went public as a public company and sold stock, 
they were amazing. Like I could post on Facebook, people would buy. It was a very direct one-to-one conversation. As soon as they went public, they changed the algorithm behind their ads to make you buy ads to reach your own followers. So that I found if I buy a Facebook ad, I'll get more followers, but they don't buy. Hmm. And that's because that algorithm is set to showing more people your information, not necessarily showing the people that want to buy your information. As to where my newsletter, I know they want to buy it because my newsletter is made from people who've bought from me before or people that sign up on my website. Interesting. Okay. And I didn't dig far enough in. Do you sell your pottery on your website? I do. Yeah. Carterpottery.com slash shop. I have a periodic shop there. <laughs> and that I am setting you up for all of your self-promotions. <laughs> Go right ahead. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so in in the scenario of my website, I have periodic sales. So I don't have a shop that stays up all the time. And that's because I do other exhibitions in which I need that work that's in the shop to go to the other exhibition. So what I'll do is situational sales, like Christmas, Mother's Day, stuff like that. There's also this thing, like I keep hearing this thing, uh, keeping the topic keep coming up, sort of exclusivity. So like when people think there are less available, they suddenly feel the need to buy. Like, so, you know, I feel like like if you put up a thing saying, hey, I just made 500 pots or 500 teacups, people would be like, yeah, there's 500, I can wait. But if you say, I just made five teacups, I feel like that that these days, like that sort of is a bit more of an impetus to make people buy when they think there's limited stock on things. Scarcity definitely creates demand or the perception of scarcity because the potters I know that do well have pots in their studio. They're just putting select pots into that online space to be sold. Now, another way to sell 500 teacups, I'm glad you got that gave that as an example. If you put it in a fine art gallery and you arrange 500 teacups on a wall in a way that creates content, people will buy one individual teacup as a reminder of the installation. And I see potters do this. That's a very interesting way to sort of bridge those two worlds. So like, so, so people can come in and experience, a, a, we'll call it an, like an installation and then be able to purchase part of the installation to take home to remember the experience. That's very cool. Okay, any other tips and tricks about online sales, online marketing, all this stuff? Because like, basically, my, my podcast, The Wise Fool, is basically I know some things and I certainly am an idiot about many other things. And one of those things I'm absolutely an idiot about is online marketing. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me has been consistency. <laughs> uh, so however I can create patterns of business, that's what I do. So for instance, I post to Instagram about myself. I post to Instagram about the people I interview on my podcast, and there's a rhythm to it. So I post in a busy week, I might post once a day, but on a slower week, I'll just post about the people that I'm interviewing, but it's still a rhythm. Every week I'm posting. And because of that, I'm getting more followers, and that turns into the potential for more sales. Now, if I thought about this like, I have to post to Instagram or I am not being successful. I might put too much pressure on myself. That is an issue. Yeah. The, that, that sort of the, the spirit of fun, the spirit of play, the, 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 the enjoyment of utilizing these, these things that are meant to be social connective tissues versus the, the, the pressure of the I need to or I'm obligated to or I'm expected to can often turn creative people into having a, a disdain for or a dislike of doing this, this job. Yeah, about five or maybe five or 10 years ago, I, I did a series of workshops for people on using social media for sales and for engagement. And what I found was that people that were older that had made their livings, made, being potters or artists, painters, anyone, 
they were resistant to the idea that they needed to post <laughs> that they needed to post regularly because they felt like it was too invasive in their lives and it's because they had built their business on the postcard format which is that you have a sale or you have an exhibition and you send one postcard and that used to be effective um, but the rhythm of that is more like you might do two postcard or three postcard mailings a year. Now I want to do two to three Instagram posts or Twitter posts or um, newsletters per week or per month. So I send out less newsletters than I do, say, Instagram posts, but I still want to have a rhythm that keeps people knowing that I'm alive and also that just invites them into my life to see what I'm doing when I'm not selling them something. If I only post about selling, people are less likely to sell. If I post about my life and occasionally post about selling, people are more likely to buy, which is an interesting phenomenon in the internet age. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, I I get it. You know, people want to uh, have a, a lifestyle to admire and, and sort of uh, – dream of and kind of thing. I get all that kind of an idea. The The problem is, is like, for me, I don't use it like that. Like when I go on social media, I don't sit there and go like, oh, look at that person's life. It's so aspirational. I want to own what they own. Like, I don't do that. I'm actually looking at like things that are going on. Where are they going? What are they doing? You know, what are they producing? What, what products are they using when they're producing that thing? You know, like I'm more interested stupidly, like of like, if I'm looking at a painter, I want to see what paints they're using. <laughs> like, I don't want to, but I don't want to see what their bedroom looks like. So like, <laughs> there, there's, you know, there's a little fine line on that. Like, there's a certain amount of information I think is really great that comes through through social media and very useful and very educational and very informative. But there's also a bunch of just stuff that's just not necessary. So it's like, so what I'm trying to get to here is how far do you go with it? So like there's your business, which is just pure, like put up a piece of pottery. Hey, this is for sale. And then there's that very personal side that we all need to find a f way to balance in there because people want to feel connected to these, to everybody else. That's what social media does. You want to feel connected to them somehow. So you've got to give a, the feed a personality, but like how far do you go with that? You know, like, should I post pictures of my cats or like, or, or is it, or is it sort of like stay with it within your business practice and then, and, and, and things that revolve around it? Or do you go all the way to like, Hey, this is what I ate for lunch. In the beginning of Instagram, there were so many pictures of people's sandwiches. Like for some reason we as humans want to show people our food, which is a weird thing. <laughs> I stop following people when they start showing me their food. Yeah. And, and what's changed is now there are chefs that are on Instagram that do show their food because that's their passion and that's the thing that they're really known for. What I think you do to dictate this decision is what are you passionate about? So for instance, I'm more likely to post about another artist that I'm really passionate about their work than I am what I had for lunch, even what I made today. Like as a potter, I returned to the same ceramic forms over and over again for decades. So does someone really need to see another cup that looks like the same cup I posted six months ago? I don't think they do, but some potters do. Some potters are really into posting just whatever happened in that day. And if they repeat images or repeat styles of images, that's okay. I want my Instagram feed and other feeds to be a little bit more like a news source. Like they might go to my feed, learn about another artist, and then go to that artist website. I think about it like a hub and a wheel. I want to be the center of the wheel. If you think about a, a wheel with spokes, then from my podcast or from my Instagram feed, all those spokes go out to all these different artists. And to me, that still feels like I'm engaged with my community, but I'm not talking about myself all the time because that gets a little bit that like me showing you pictures of my wife or our pets or anything like that just feels a little bit too like, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's not that interesting. Okay. You're making me feel self-conscious about telling all my stories because I feel like <laughs> I'm talking a little bit too much about me because we're really here about you. But, okay. So business, general business practices, like, so how have you structured your business? It sounds like you do a lot of online things, but like many of us in the creative industries, you I'm 
for, I've already, you know, from reading about you beforehand and from what you've said so far, you seem to do have done the same thing we've all done, which is basically diversify. So like you have different avenues of income in order, and they sort of all support your entire business slash livelihood, whatever. So like, so you do workshops and then you also do shows, I assume. So that you go around to pottery shows and other sort of exhibitions kinds of things. You do your online sales. Can people also, is, is there a physical place people can come and purchase your stuff as well? Um, at differing times in my life, there have been. <laughs> um, right now I'm living in New Jersey and we live in a somewhat rural area. So I do have people come to my studio, but I'm not close to anything. When I, I used to live in California when my we lived there for about six years while my wife was getting a PhD. And during that time, it was close to San Francisco. It was close to San Jose. And people would drive over the hill and come visit. We lived in Santa Cruz, a small town on the beach there. I went to the San Francisco Art Institute, so I know it pretty well. Oh, nice. Yeah, just come right down one and you'll, <laughs> you'll get right to Santa Cruz. But you can see because that drive is not very far, people wanted to get out of the city. So they would come and visit me and visit my studio and buy. So in-person sales for me are now based on selling pots to workshop participants. So if I go give a lecture at a university and do a demonstration, I bring pots with me. I ship them there or bring them in my suitcase packed well, and then I sell them directly to that to the people that are in attendance. And it the math for me works out better because let's say if I have 100 people come to a lecture, I only need 20 of those people to buy things, but I get to keep 100% of the money that I get from those sales. When I sell through a gallery, I give the gallery 50%. So the more in-person sales I can do, the better. Now things are going to be a little bit more difficult for a while. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, like, have you, of course, we're recording this in the middle of this pandemic and you're, we're all quarantined and all this kind of stuff. Some other people I've spoken to have talked about how they, they actually have seen upticks in certain parts of their business because of the quarantine. Have you seen either, I mean, there are obvious things that we see have going down, but have you seen anything go up? Yeah. Part of my income is made through my podcast. I have a, a Patreon fundraiser that's ongoing that my listeners give money. The show itself is free, but people donate, basically. Donations have gone up since the pandemic. But my workshops have gone down, and it's not reached parity yet. So my workshops have been canceled in May and June. Um, I think I had three workshops that were canceled for that time period. So I'm hoping that general donations to the podcast will go up to counteract that. I also, though, I'm going to have an online sale. So I'm trying to get ahead of the curve. <laughs> I don't ever want to feel as a business person like I've run out of money. So what that means for me is I need to think a couple months down the road and say, okay, I was going to have a workshop in June that was going to make X amount of money, say $3,000. I need to have an online sale in May that then makes that $3,000. So I don't, I don't want to feel panicked when I get to that place in my head where I feel like I don't have enough money. So I think just planning is the best thing. <laughs> well, that, and that's the thing that creative people are generally the worst at. Like we are the worst business people. We are the worst foreseers of the future. We are the worst savers of money. Like we always want to buy a new, like in your case, it would be like a new wheel or a new kiln or invest in some special clay, let's say, or some great slips or whatever. Like you always want, you want to elevate your ability and, and, you know, give yourself more opportunities, more, um, more tools to make something new or better or interesting but we are so bad at overspending and and not thinking about the future and not saving for the rainy days and things like this how do you do that well this is a good time to put a plug in for what um i was taught to do which is to have a prudent reserve now a prudent reserve is between three and six months of your operating expenses for your life for your business whatever you want to have the reserve for so i started to do that this year because i had some teaching earlier in the year and i'm thankful that i did that that i started to save that money what i didn't account for though is that the pandemic would last longer than the three to six month time frame 
So probably if we're smart going forward, all of us as artists should just save straight up 25% of our income and save it. Not for a specific amount of time, just forever. Like you get a thousand dollar check, you save 25% of that. And that is for the inevitability of this type of scenario. Yeah. Because part of the issue now is, of course, the fear of this happening again. I think it's likely to happen with my understanding of this specific coronavirus is that it's going to come in waves. So we're in a lockdown in the U.S. now. We I'm in a state that's been locked down for five weeks, I believe. We're going to probably come out of lockdown in June or July and August and go back into lockdown later on when it comes back around again is, is my understanding of it. Yeah, that's the story I've heard too. Yeah, I mean, the here in the Czech Republic, they've actually brought up the idea of keeping the borders closed for an entire year. Wow. Which uh, I get it. I mean, I understand, but like that's kind of a weird situation to be a, a, an expat in a country that is locked down. So like, I don't even know if I'd be allowed to leave, but that's I hope I never have to leave. So like, it's fine. But okay, so. <laughs> I'm trying to stay away from the pandemic talk because <laughs> because it's it's an unforeseeable and it's just a theory like it's not there's nothing tangible yet per se as far as like how we're going to come out of this especially as creative people because I try to be a bit of an optimist about these kinds of things. Yes, okay, the world economy is about to go to shit. Yeah, lots of people are losing their jobs. Yes, people are dying. I get all the pain and suffering that's going on in the world, but Creative people are, well, by their nature, creative. And so, like, this is the time when we need to figure out new ways to do things. So, like, okay, the world's changing. We are the the instigators as the creative industries, basically. We're the people that create new ideas. So, like, we need to figure out new avenues. Like, you have the luxury, to a certain extent of having this very well-esteemed podcast. Like, by the way, I want to throw out every single list I looked at about like, you know, best art podcast, et cetera, all over the internet, your podcast is always on the list. So you have done a phenomenal job of building a very good reputation. And so like you have, you already have this good sort of additional creative outlet that's good, should be able to keep you going in some way through all of this. But what can the what are some creative ideas that you've already I'm sure been thinking of about how to zigzag around the near come near future of being a creative salesperson? Yeah, online education is the thing that I think I'm most ready to do now. So, for instance, I, I have friends that are already I haven't started doing this, but I'm going to talk a little bit about Sunshine Cobb. She's a potter that's based in Montana. About two weeks into this epidemic or pandemic, she was already teaching online workshops. And what she would do is she would have a topic. The workshop is just one hour long. Each participant pays 20 to $25, I think. I can't remember exactly what her pricing was. And she could have 30 to 50 people in an online workshop either doing what she's doing. She would talk about a specific pottery form. So making a covered jar would be one of those. She could talk about that for just an hour, but basically make the amount of money that we usually get paid as potters to do a weekend long workshop. So when I saw her doing that, I started thinking, well, what would I teach about? You know, like, what's the thing that I have specific knowledge of? So I'm in my mind, I'm thinking about teaching courses on material culture. So the interaction of functional objects in ceramic history on specific cultures so that's, I'm, I'm already planning in my head how to do that. I'm trying to think about what's the format that makes the most sense for my audience. And I hopefully will be able to get this going within the next month is my plan. But online education is so specific to what people already do. Like I, I started teaching business classes for artists with a woman named Molly Hatch, who's a designer. Um, we had a course called Think Big that was... It started about six years ago, and we ran that um, two to three times. And we did um, two different courses, one on basic business skills and other one on marketing. 
So I have that experience years ago. So I feel like my audience already knows that I can teach online. So it's a natural transition for me to then go back to teaching online. For artists that don't have experience teaching online, I encourage you to just stick your foot in the water (laughs) and do either use Zoom or you you can even do Instagram Live. There's lots of different options, but just do a one time workshop on some skill that you feel comfortable talking about and just see how it goes. Cause I think, I think people are going to be, as we're quarantined longer, we're going to be starved for information. So I think it can really help. We're going to be um, giving people a positive thing to focus on and not be in their heads thinking about all of the illness and sickness stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing university teaching online for years, and I also do portfolio reviews online that I've been doing for also a couple of years. And so, like, I understand the benefits of this, but I mean, yeah, it, it, it has its pros and cons across the board. Like, you know, it's it's not easy and it, it's difficult because a lot of it's about like the teacher student relationship is also about the connection. Like, and that's not every creative person has that those skill sets to be able to create those engaging times and t- discussions and things like this. So it's a it's a time where we're going to have to sort of maybe you know you know suck it up and learn some new skill sets to in order to get through all this and come out the other side in some positive way. Yeah, flexibility at a time like this is the most important thing. You know, some artists might have to get jobs that they don't really want for a short amount of time just to be able to make it back to the other end of this, you know? And that I've thought about that. Like I there were times in my pottery career where I was a dog walker. And I didn't want to be a dog walker, but it paid so well in California (laughs) that I did that for about five years, I think. It was a really good, easy way to make income. It was also a good way to get me out walking around because I'm always sitting down making stuff on the wheel. Um, So something like that, like the flexibility, that might have to happen for artists. And that's, you know, we might not like that, but I'm willing to do that. And I think a lot of people listening to this might be willing to take a job like that or some type of job just to be able to make ends meet. Yeah, I think dog walking is a bit of a metropolitan area kind of thing, though. I don't think that's available to most (laughs) people in the world. That's true. (laughs) Another thing I'm thinking about in general for artists is how do you help your community locally? So, for instance, I have a friend, Forrest Middleton. Um, He's out in Petaluma, California. And he decided that he would make packets of ceramic material, like clay, tools, and just a brief curriculum to give to parents so that that their kids would have something to do. And he's selling these packets. But he, I mean, he's making money off of this. But I don't think it's about the money. It's about... He knows that his friends are stir crazy because their kid, they're all of a sudden we have to homeschool. Everyone has to homeschool their kids. So he's doing something to directly help his community while also engaging in his business. So I encourage the listeners that are listening right now, like to think like, what's the thing you can do that might help your community emotionally? Maybe you go out, if you're a painter and you paint a mural so that there's a public artwork Maybe you do a class like what Forrest Middleton did, where it's a remote class, but you give them the materials. Every artist is going to have a different solution, but I think if we all think about what's our value to the community, it might increase our creativity in ways that we wouldn't have thought about three months ago, six months ago, before this all happened. Yeah, the idea of sort of creating some sort of things for homeschooling is a very interesting idea, because that's something that a lot of artists basically could almost take some scrap stuff that they have that they sitting around their studio that they may not use for their large scale whatevers, but that they could package up and make available to people in their community or online or whatever to create like a, a little teaching thing or an experience for home, children being homeschooled at this time. Like that's yeah, fun. I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes if you'll send it to me. Okay. I'll be glad to. You said you live out in a bit of a rural area. I have been dreaming of living in a rural area for years. And I want to know, like, because I was raised in the metropolitan area and I've lived in rural areas, I've lived in metropolitan areas, and it's always that sort of give and take of, like, 
do you need to live in the, the big cities to be culturally enhanced by the experience of like things you have the opportunity or is there some great thing about living away from the big metropolitan cities that somehow adds something different to your life and your creative uh, juices let's say like you know so like pros and cons major metropolitan city rural area give me your input I have found that living in a rural area is good for me because my everyday stress level is lower. When I lived in Shanghai, there's 24 million people, actually a little bit more depending on how you count the boundary of the city. That's a lot of people. And I found that I had this sort of base level stress with being around that many people. It was stimulating to go to the Shanghai Museum, but it wasn't necessarily worth the stress. So for me here, I would rather live in a rural area. And it's we're we're an hour and a half from New York City and an hour from Philadelphia. So well, that's good. Yeah. So even though I'm in a rural area, technically, I'm close to cultural hubs. And to me, that has the benefits of both. I can go see a Broadway show if I wanted to. I can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Philadelphia Museum of Art but I'm paying less rent and I have a better lifestyle by living in rural New Jersey. Yeah. I've always said that I want to live somewhere about an hour to an hour and a half outside of a major metropolitan area because for every reason you just explained. So yeah. Okay, good. I just wanted to know if like my thoughts were on par. Yeah. I encourage you to. (laughs) Okay, great. Lovely. You uh, you mentioned that you tra- you were in Shanghai for a while. So one other thing that I'm always interested in hearing, because like some people, some creative people often stay in their own city, state, country, whatever, and they don't travel very much. So like I'd like to hear a little bit about some of your how the experience of traveling and experiencing different cultures possibly influenced you either for good or for bad. Like you said, like you realized you didn't want to live in a major metropolitan area because you lived in this crazy tense place. So, but did it also influence your creativity? So like, did you, what things did you take away from it? And overall, like if you had to give a summation of like traveling is great for your creative soul or bad for it, like what kind of, feedback would you have on that? Yeah, it's been it's been really good for my creative soul. I like that you that you talk about it as if it's um a nourishing thing because it, it is for me. You know, with traveling you have to put out some expense to get where you're going, but the value of the information I've gotten by living in Shanghai, I've worked in Australia a good bit, I've worked in New Zealand, I've traveled in Europe some, like those experiences have shaped me into a a person that thinks other cultures are important and beautiful and interesting. And I think that is priceless. Like I, I, I think there is, that's one of the best things we can do as citizens today is to become global citizens as opposed to national citizens. And it, I think more about my relationship with the Chinese population, having lived there for two and a half years than I would have if I just, you know, went there for a week long trip. So I I actually encourage people to go live overseas, which is an experience you've had. And I think being an expat was a beautiful thing. Like I, I Chinese, the Chinese population in Shanghai really taught me how to respect immigrants in the U S there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment in China. There's largely not, there's not a lot of violence. There's not a lot of crime, there was one incident in two and a half years where my wife had an incident that was uncomfortable being an immigrant working there. Besides that, like that is totally different. In the U.S., there is so much racism and bigotry and anti-immigrant sentiment. It just made me wish that as Americans, we all lived overseas so we could see how similar we are to other people as opposed to what politicians tell us about us being so different. We're not that different. (laughs) Oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, I'm also looking like, did it, so Shanghai, like, I mean, there's a rich history of pottery. I mean, like, centuries old there versus America. So it's like, did did that influence you? In some, did, it, did it give you some grander appreciation and, and reverence for, like, the grand history? And some, maybe even, did you ever pick up any of the techniques and bring, you know, bring them into your own... Uh, creative uh, practice. I did. 
if we look at the bigger picture first, I loved going to the Shanghai Museum or there's the Shanxi Regional Museum that I've been to. There's a lot of Chinese museums where they have really good museum culture and they will show the lineage of porcelain over a 500-year period. And in Shanghai, they literally show you how porcelain was developed by the objects being in display cases. It's it's an amazing exhibit. So I got a bigger appreciation, but then I also got actual technical art skills from observing Chinese art. So I would go look at the scroll paintings, which are up on the third floor or second floor, and the negative space in Chinese scroll paintings directly affects the way I think about negative space in a pattern now. So if you think about Western patterns, we tend to fill spaces. We tend to, there's this thing called horror vacui where we, we literally fill up every space in a pattern or a design. And in China, these scroll paintings have this beautiful mist that's painted in the middle ground and they let the space breathe. And that's one of the, the ideas with the painting is, is that the, the viewer would look at the painting and feel small. It, like they would feel humbled by the experience of looking at the landscape. I think about that all the time when I'm painting pots now, thinking about how do I create an engaged negative space that leads the viewer around the pot, but that also makes the viewer feel comfortable so that there's not too much tension in the design, which was really good for me because I tend to over-decorate. I'm a more is more kind of artist. So this was like a good lesson about just take a step back, like do more with less as opposed to just add more and more and more. Yeah, because I often wonder when artists travel, whether they, you know, because like I find that one of two things happens when you travel to an, a, a different culture is either you embrace it or or having seen the other culture, it allows you to have a better understanding of why you like what you already did like before so like so either you take on whatever or engage with it or it gives you a greater appreciation of basically the where you already are so like one way or another generally creative people gain something uh, from traveling yeah and and i really encourage people to look in an economic hardship right now to look for jobs in other countries I graduated graduate school after the economic recession in 2008. And what happened is that I went to China, which had a good economy, and it allowed me to live in a place that was thriving culturally, that was thriving financially, that was thriving in all sorts of different ways, as opposed to staying home and feeling like that the world was collapsing. Now, I know this pandemic is a little different because there's a global recession that's going to happen. But I just want to encourage people not to be afraid to take a risk and, you know, push through the uncomfortability of living in a country you don't know for the benefits, the cultural benefits, the travel, the human benefits. Like one of the simple things I did in China was met my wife, who has been tremendously wonderful for me. You know, she's my favorite person in the world. I would not have had that. I would never have met her if I wasn't there. So I think there's all sorts of direct and indirect benefits from being willing to live somewhere else. Yeah, it's it, it being an expat has many benefits, but it does have a lot of difficulties. I mean, you know, I I'm not going to sit here and like just go along with and go, "Oh, being an expat's magnificent." No, absolutely not. There are a <laughs> lot of difficult parts of being an expat, but it is a great life experience. I mean, like I live I go back to like some of my own career choices. Like like when I went out of grad school, I was looking for teaching jobs and you know somebody said to me at the, some point they said like you can't look for a job that's perfect for you, you or or you can't look for a place that's perfect for you. You look for a job that's perfect for you and it, then the place is secondary. So like there's a fine balance on like the right job and or the right place and sometimes they're not the same place and maybe not the same job but like you have to weigh what's more important to you so, and sometimes you have to go places you don't want like I thought going to the Middle East was going to be like oh my god I'm so excited I'm going to get to be in the Middle East I can engage with this new culture and all this kind of stuff and 90% of the people that lived in the United Arab Emirates were actually expats from other countries. So only 10% of the people in the country were actually from the country. 
um, and they were very guarded and not very approachable, and it was very difficult to actually participate in their culture. So that was nowhere near the experience I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, Czech cultures got its own nuances for sure as well. So like, you know, traveling is great and, and taking any opportunity you can to go somewhere is, is a great idea, but just understand that it always has a, a balance to it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. For better or for worse. <laughs> in your travels as doing your podcast and all the people you're meeting and experiencing and seeing, and of course, through your workshops and everything, are there any sort of aesthetics or techniques or anything that seem to be coming to the forefront these days? So like, where's the contemporary market for pottery and ceramics going? There's a, a really uh, a wonderful artist in the U.S. named Julia Galloway. And she is a professor in Montana, but she is one of the most prolific ceramic artists that we have in this generation. And she, I actually saw her directly influence the aesthetics of younger potters within her lifetime, which is a, a rare occasion that that happens. She had some work at the Clay Studio, which is a gallery and art center in Philadelphia in the um, early 2010s. And she was doing a technique called Mishima, which is a inlay inlay technique with it's a ceramic inlay technique. And I literally saw the exhibition of her work, and within two years, the whole ceramic field, a generation of artists that were 20 years younger with her, had not only picked up her technique, but had picked up her sort of understanding of meaning through ceramics. So one of the things that she does really well is she will arrange like she did a, a exhibition of, I think, a couple hundred pictures that had drawings from James Audubon's Birds of North America. Then she had, she displayed them in a gallery. When you walked up to the picture, there was a, a sound sensor that clicked on and it played the sound of the bird that was on the pot. So when you walk through the gallery, you had this sense that these birds of North America, that some of which were instinct, extinct, were really alive, which was interesting. She was creating content by the installation of the functional pot, but people still bought them as functional pots and used them. So someone like her, I think she's pushing the boundaries, or at least educating earlier generations about what a pot can be and how it can live both in the art world and in the home. So I'm, you know, I'm really excited about her work. I think she's the, the preeminent American potter of our, of our era. In terms of where the field is going in general, we've had a huge boom in ceramics. We're in a golden era, aesthetically, of American ceramics. It's A couple things have shifted. One, you have more graphic-oriented work because people are selling online, going back to that conversation we had before. So you have more pattern on pots. You have more decoration. Instead of having what you might think of as the round and brown era of American ceramics, which was the 70s. I remember it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, remember yeah. it well. Now we're in the era of visual communication on pots. So people are drawing. They're using computer-generated design to, to 3D print objects. I was about to ask, like, how about th what do you feel about 3D printing as a hand producer? Oh, I, I think people now are using it in a really successful way. There was a, a good decade where you couldn't get past the fact that the object was 3D printed. It just looked, it just, it didn't look good. <laughs> like the technology had not been refined in a way that made sense. But now there are artists like, I just did an interview with a, a gentleman named Tom Lowerman. He's actually right now working using 3D printing to develop respirators and face shields for PPE, like personal protective equipment. But he also is an amazing artist that I think is doing 3D printed ceramics exactly in the way that I want it to be. He's referencing architecture. He's making objects that are about space but he's 3D printing them. I, I encourage you guys to check out his work. It's really Wait, phenomenal. 3D printing using clay. Using clay. And then he fires those objects just the same way we fire them in you know, ceramic kilns. Okay, but does but doesn't that sort of hurt you a little bit, having somebody else who can like produce, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of like perfect designed things using a machine 
versus your handmade sort of you know custom you know uniqueness that uh, goes into your work is it is there a little bit of difficulty there there's not for me now but if you would have asked me this 10 years ago i think there would have been yeah um i understand yeah what's changed is that i have been blown away by 3d printed objects and i didn't have that experience back then so my opinion has changed because people have gotten better and and really like to me, I don't necessarily care how something is made. I want to know what's the intent of the maker. And I want to know, can they communicate their intent to me through the object? Like that's what I'm interested in. Um, I think there are a lot of functional potters that are a little bit um, weary of 3D printing because it's reproducible. See, that's funny. I wasn't even thinking down that path. I was just thinking of like the way that I would imagine, of course, keep in mind, I'm not a 3D worker generally, but like I would imagine 3D printed things can create architecture uh, literally that maybe can't be done on a wheel or it can't be, you know, so like I could imagine amazing asymmetrical things that would be, be able to create it and all kinds of architecture that could be built that would, would be physically impossible to do other ways. Yeah, and I think smart artists are ones that look at evolution and get excited about it as opposed to feel threatened by it. I think this is a double-edged sword of tradition that ceramics often falls into. Tradition is great because it gives a background. It's not great if it becomes a limiting factor in terms of looking forward. Oh, all artists are like that. They're always afraid of new technologies. It doesn't matter whether you're what what medium you work in new technology scares I me mean, i i had a photography background and i remember i was in the industry at the time when inkjet printing got created and we were all so angry and pissy about the idea of like the, you know the handmade darkroom print being replaced by this digital thing which of course now has completely taken over the industry and and the rarity of finding a darkroom print is now a, a, a you know mysterious thing so yeah it just takes time to embrace new technologies yeah at one time my grandparents probably thought that telephones were invasive <laughs> and now we i still think telephones are invasive but <laughs> right. it's fine. every generation has something you know it used to be my gen my grandparents generation it was telephones then it was tv i mean my father remembers a time in which there was no tv they would literally get around a radio in rural southwest virginia and listen on the radio so things are changing i think it's exciting because i'm always on a fan of more information like you give artists more information and we all get smarter so hopefully we're moving in the right direction in terms of all this Absolutely fabulous way to end this conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You can also help by supporting our network through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the conversations and the insights that you gain from the guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know that one of my weaknesses is my inability at self-promotion, so here we go. If after hearing this conversation you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com m-a-t-t-h-e-w-d-o-l-s dot com thanks <music>